All right, and so we're going to look today at uh, the ram and the rough goat, uh, or the he goat, that's what the scriptures call it. And, uh, and hopefully this will be somewhat of a blessing for you. It's not necessarily a very practical lesson. There may be a couple of practical things in here that you can maybe draw from. But there is going to be some things you can learn. And uh, I don't know about you. I don't know if you like history at all. I like history. You know, it's interesting. I wish I could do more history within this lesson. I thought of even showing a video. I found an excellent video that showed Alexander the Great's, uh, the way he would conquer the enemy army. And it showed in very visual fashion how, how the strategy worked. But I thought, well, that might take too much time. And so I won't be doing that. <laughs> and so, but I love that kind of stuff. And so Daniel chapter 8, we'll be, read the first couple of verses, then we'll get into this. In verse number 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a, a, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was, in, I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted up mine eyes, and I saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but the one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram push westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him, Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power." And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up, uh, and for it came up four notable ones, toward the four winds of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would just guide and direct this message tonight. Thank you, Lord, for it. I pray you'd help us to learn some things from Daniel and from what you did in exposing and in revealing all these things so many years before they took place. We thank you for being a great God and for knowing our future. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, we're going to look at Daniel's vision. Letter A, this vision occurred in the third year of Belshazzar, that's 551 B.C., two years after the vision of the great beasts. So last week we talked about the great beasts in Daniel 7, uh, verse number, or the whole chapter there. And uh, that, that happened, that was a two-year period between these two chapters. And letter B, in the vision, Daniel was brought to Shushan, or Susa is what it was called. Number one, Babylon's reign was to end with 12, within 12 years, and Persia's was to begin. And so why did God have to take him to, to Shushan? Well, Shushan was the capital of Persia. And of course, uh, Persia was about to take power, because Belshazzar was, he was a Babylonian king. They were still in the Babylonian empire when he had this vision. And... Um, but in a short decade or so, this is all going to end. So think about this. 
This is uh, some 12 years before Belshazzar had the feast where he was judged and killed and, and Darius came and took over the kingdom. And so Daniel knew this a decade ahead of time. He knew what was going to happen. So then it makes you think when Belshazzar offered him all these things, how he's just looking at him saying, yeah, right. <laughs> like, there's nothing that you can do for me. Your time is over. Your time is done. You keep your rewards. I don't want them, you know. And he knew that uh, well ahead of time, and he carried that with him the whole time. And so <clears throat> this aspect of being brought to a uh, particular place in a vision, that's happened before in Scripture. In Revelation 17, verse 3, it says, So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness. Uh, we know that even Paul was, was, was uh, brought up to the third heaven in his vision. And so that's not something that is uh, abnormal in visions for God to take someone and to move them to a different locality to show them a truth. In actually Revelation 21 verse 10 it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so there you had John actually seeing Jerusalem come down. So he was transported to that very place where he saw that. Um, so Babylon um, <clears throat> is not even mentioned in this chapter, and that's because it's really lost its significance. Uh, Daniel, at uh, this time, was retired from the Babylonian government. Belshazzar, this wicked king, he had no need for a godly Jew. He had no need for someone like Daniel that had wisdom, and like, like Darius did when he was actually king. He was going to make him king overall. But when this man got into power, I mean, he was just, uh, he was worth nothing to him. Uh, Shushan, number two, was a city 200 miles southeast of Babylon and at this time had little significance. So think about this. Persia is not a powerhouse at this point. Daniel's getting this vision. He's carried to Shushan, but the palace, but this place really isn't even on the radar to the Babylonians. In fact, during the time of the Babylonian Empire, the Medes were powerful. And so their attention was always on the Mede army. And yet they never gave a thought to the Persian army. And so it's kind of interesting that he brought them over to Shushan, not to the Mede nation, but to the Persian nation. And so this was something that he was learning here. Um, so Persia was not a threat to Babylon at this time. Uh, they thought definitely more of the Medes than the Persians. Number three, the province of Elam was a rich place going back to the time of Abraham. In Genesis 10, verse 22, it says, The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. So Asher is the one who started Syria. Elam was another province that was created. And so these children of Shem and these early people were actually the start of many great nations. And Elam ended up being a province that was very rich and uh, very productive. Number four, uh, Shushan would later become the capital of Persia. You see that in Nehemiah 1 verse 1. And the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu in the 
20th year as I was in the Shushan, the palace. And so this is, of course, many years later. Esther, you see the same thing, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace. And so it became the powerhouse of the Persian nation. Number five, the, the river Yulai was probably a canal that flowed through Shushan or Susa. In Daniel 8, verse 2, And I saw in a vision, it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Uli. So the river was important. It's interesting, even Ezekiel talked about the, the river. Uh, he, he was ministering by the river there in Babylon. And so Daniel 8, verse 16, it says, I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. And so the river had something to do with this. Letter C, Daniel sought for the prophecy's meaning. It's interesting when he got the dream from Nebuchadnezzar, he really didn't have to seek within the vision a meaning. God just gave it to him. But here it seems that he had to actually dig a little bit to find the truth behind what's going on in this particular vision. In Daniel 8, 15, it says, It came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me his appearance of a man. And so when did the man come? After he sought for the meaning, <laughs> you know. I always tell people, Jesus taught in parables, and anybody who didn't care to know what he was talking about, he wouldn't tell them. But many times after he he preached a parable, the disciples or those that had a seeking heart would go to him and they'd ask him for the meaning of that particular parable and then he'd explain it to a smaller group. So he'd preach the parable to the bigger group and, and teach the meaning to a smaller group. And so I would say the parables, he spoke in parables because he wanted us to come to him for wisdom for the instruction, for seeking for the answer. That's why people that are just, um, just wanting a uh, vague view of Scripture, not really digging, are never really going to grow in the Lord. Because <laughs> the Lord created it for us to grow where we have to seek for it. Amen? Seek and ye shall find. And that's what Daniel did. So it's important to seek the meaning of scriptural prophecy. And so we've got to be careful of just turning to the YouTube to find out our answers. Amen. That's very easy. A lot of people do that. It's, cause, it's got the church in a lot of trouble because you've got a lot of people believing a whole bunch of different things that they heard on YouTube and then they come to the church and they're not of like mind. And that's because they're simply learning from the wrong sources. And so part of the prayer is that you ought to pray, Lord, lead me to the right source of truth where I can learn properly what I'm supposed to learn and be careful of the internet and the YouTubers and, and so forth because you can find uh, people saying all kinds of crazy things out there and even if you can find good people that say some good things but tucked within the good things are some things that aren't so good and so you got to have a lot of discernment and that's where it's important for you to have a, a dependent attitude towards the Lord because then you'll say you know what it's more important about how my church is minded, and I got to fall into line with what is being taught in our local assembly. And if that is anti-scriptural, then find a different church to go to. <laughs> Amen. 
But there's no sense in you getting different doctrine and becoming different than your local assembly. And if your local assembly is so far off that you can't be of like mind, then you shouldn't be there. <laughs> Amen. Then you should find one that, that is. And many times you'll have guys coming in from out of the uh, out of the world and they come in with all their ideas they got on YouTube and they're not willing to give it up. And so basically you say, well, go find a church that'll agree with you, you know, and they won't. And the devil's got them trapped in the situation where they will never be a part of God's plan. They're just going to circulate and run around from one to another to another, never really setting in roots anywhere because the Lord isn't leading them. <laughs> the Lord can't because they've been twisted by false doctrine and so forth. So it's very important that we seek the meaning of scriptural, scriptural prophecy. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Number two, we must seek understanding with prayer. That means you got to ask God for understanding. That's where Proverbs 2 verse 3 says, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Amen. This is very important that we ask God, show me these things and dig into it. You're supposed to seek for her as silver. You're supposed to cry after knowledge and ask God to show you the truth of the scripture. If that's not a part of your life, then you're probably not growing very much. <laughs> you know, what you get in church maybe, what you maybe get uh, periodically through this, that, or the other. But that's not the way God wants us to be. He wants us to daily grow in our relationship with Christ through the word of God. And for that to happen, you've got to seek it and you've got to pray for it, <laughs> cry for it, amen? Uh, we, we definitely seek for our silver in the, in the worldly sense. I mean, we, we spend hours and hours a day seeking for that silver, <laughs> amen? What about the silver that really counts? A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor than silver and gold, amen? And so it's, it's far more important to seek the scriptures than it is even to seek money in this world. That's what the Bible says, amen? Letter D, because I think if you seek wisdom, the Lord will give you that. And that's what he proved with Solomon, didn't he? He says, because you ask for wisdom, I'm going to give you all these other things as well. Letter D, the angel Gabriel helped Daniel understand the vision. And you see that in verse 15, it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in deep sleep on my face toward the ground. But he touched me and set me upright. And he said, behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed, the end shall be. And so, basically at the end of this chapter, we're going to get into uh, the little horn. And I have been kind of staying away from that topic for the last couple of chapters, because I want to kind of tackle it all in one time. 
And so we're going to go through Daniel chapter 9, talk about Israel. Then at the end of the, the prophecy with Israel, there we see the Antichrist again, the little horn. And when we get to that place, I want to run back and show you Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 9, and, show you, and Daniel 11, and show you truths about the Antichrist. We'll do that all in one lesson instead of giving you separated uh, thoughts about them. Daniel 8 is interesting because Daniel 8, historically, it's talking about how the little horn came out of the Grecian Empire. And because of that, people relegated only to Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a terrible king that rose up during the intertestamental period uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament and really uh, was wicked towards the Jews. And there may be some application to that within there, but I believe with all of my heart, when it's talking about little horn, it's talking about the Antichrist. So even if Antiochus was someone that the devil was using during that time, what you're beginning to see is, is that the strategy that Satan uses with all of his world leaders is always the same. He's always wanting to receive worship and attack the people of God. And so that's a big part of it. And so we'll look at that when, when it comes up. But that's why Daniel chapter 8 starts talking about the little horn coming out of the Grecian Empire, coming out of the four horns. <clears throat> but in Daniel 7, you see the little horn breaking off three of the kings and taking its place among the ten kings, which obviously is pointing at the last time, that last beast. Amen? So can that little horn in Daniel 8 come out of the Grecian Empire and be the same one that's coming out of the, the beast that we saw in Daniel chapter 7? I believe he can, because I, they're all going to be there at the end. <laughs> the beast that it shows us in Revelation has the head of a lion, a leopard, a bear, <laughs> and all these things. And so all of the empires <clears throat> that we're learning about here, they're all going to be in existence during the tribulation. Because that beast that's going to be existing during that time, that ungodly nation headed by the Antichrist, parts of every empire are going to be within that empire. And so that's the interesting thing. And so the, the little horn could come out of the Grecian Empire, the aspect of the Grecian, one of those generals, one of those horns. And it could also have been coming out of the ten horns that we see in Daniel chapter 7. All right? Hope I didn't confuse you. I probably did. All right, anyways. Letter E. Daniel became sick for days following the vision. Can you imagine that, getting a vision where you actually get physically sick for days? This was an awesome thing that this, that this prophet was seeing at this time. Uh, many, many prophets have had visions, and you've never seen them respond to one like Daniel did at this time. And I think Daniel was the kind of man that took things very much to heart as well. He was not just a flippant prophet. He took it very personally. When he saw Israel suffer, it hurt him. When he knew what Israel needed to do, he, he was motivated. Uh, he, was, uh, he was zealous for the things of God. But this man, you could see, when he went through something, he went through it physically, emotionally, spiritually, and he went through the valley. <laughs> Amen. So when he saw that vision, uh, he was a part of it in such a way where when he was done with it, he felt physically sick for many, many days. And so, and it says in verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days, 
Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. <laughs> you know, so here you are. You're the only man in the world that knows what's truly going to happen. That was a heavy load for him to carry, but he just continued on. He says, what can I do <laughs> except do what I'm supposed to do? And by the way, that brings me to mind about, you know, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tonight? What would you do right now? Would you get up and leave and go somewhere? <laughs> you know what? You know what you ought to do if you know that Jesus was coming back? You should just be doing what you normally do because it should be the right thing to do. That means you're doing what God wants you to do every day. <laughs> Amen. So if you're here tonight in church, you should be here by, because God wants you to be here. And if God wants you to be here, if you knew that God was going to announce his coming in half an hour, then guess where you ought to be? Amen? Right where God wants you to be. So really, we shouldn't be motivated to change anything if we knew Jesus was coming back. We should always be living in light of his return. Which means that if we have to change something, if we knew Jesus was coming back tonight, that means we haven't been living right. You understand that? So Daniel, when he got this vision and began to know what was going to happen... What did he do? He just went about the king's business because that was the will of God for Daniel. Amen? And that should be the will of God for us. It shouldn't change. <laughs> we should do what God wants us to do. Anyways, um, these times were hundreds of years away. Daniel had no choice but to continue knowing what he knew about these coming empires. Now, he's, he knew that within the next decade or so, uh, the Persian empire was going to start but the persian empire when we're talking four kings would exist during that time and the last one would deal with with uh with, with uh alexander the great and grecia and so forth but anyways number two the ram with two horns i got a couple of illustrations i wish i could turn them on but for some reason it's not working anymore and so the ram with two horns so he lifted up his eyes and he saw and behold there stood before the river a ram which had two horns and the two horns were high, and one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And so the one that was bigger was actually one that came up later. And that's talking about Cyrus here. Uh, letter A, the ram was the Mede and Persian alliance represented by the bear in the last vision. Remember I had a picture of a bear there? There it is. All right. And we see that in Daniel 7, verse 5. And behold, another beast is second like to a bear, and it raised itself up on one side because of the Persian median balance. Had three ribs in the mouth and so forth. Letter B, the ram had two high horns, but one was higher than the other. The Medes and the Persians were powerful nations represented by high, the high horns. And so they were both very powerful. In fact, at this time when Daniel was alive, they were far more concerned about the Medes than the Persians because the Medes were powerful, all right? Number two, the higher horn that came up last was Cyrus, the Persian. The Persians were weaker of the two at one point. They were disregarded, but they would become stronger. Number three, Cyrus was the king that God chose to defeat Babylon. Isaiah prophesied about him centuries before, or at least a century and a bit. In Isaiah 42, verse 2, it says, He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Um, I'm not reading the right one here. 
verse 28 of 44. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called thee by thy name, have I surnamed thee that thou hast not, though thou hast not known me. And so here we're talking about Isaiah, uh, who is a prophet over a hundred years before Jerusalem was actually destroyed, and God's mentioning Cyrus by name. And this, this king was not going to come into power after a hundred years, and then 70 years of captivity, because that was the time that Jeremiah started prophesying before the 70 years. 70 years went by, and then Cyrus comes on the, on the scene. So there we see again how God sees everything all at one time. It's no surprise to him. He's the one that called Cyrus to do what Cyrus was supposed to do. And Cyrus was the one that gave the decree to go rebuild Jerusalem. God knew that. That's why he called him my shepherd. <laughs> so God spoke to his heart in such a way. Can you imagine being a king of a, of a powerful nation, taking over a kingdom, and then while you're there, you find out that their scriptures have talked about you uh, over a century before and mentioned you by name? you think that would play on a king's mind? <laughs> sure it would. And I believe that the Lord did that so that Cyrus would be thinking right about it. And you know what? This is what God said I would do. And it was put on, on his heart that he would let them go back to Jerusalem. And so he said, this is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> God mentioned me by name, you know. So I'm sure it changed his heart towards the, the Jews. And so it wasn't in a negative way. It was really positive. And so, uh, number four, there would be four Persian kings. The fourth, Xerxes I, was the most powerful and richest of them all. And you see that in Daniel chapter 11, verse 2. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. So this fourth king is going to stir up Grecia. The interesting thing is, Greece was being attacked constantly by Persia, and Persia never overtook Greece. And so that created such a bitterness in the hearts of these Greek people that when Alexander finally came to power, there was no stopping him. <laughs> they made themselves a monster, is what they did. And that's why he went with such uh, veracity and ferocity is the way he did. Is that the word for ferocity? I think so. <laughs> Anyways, figure it out. Look at your dictionaries later. Amen. All right. And so there was always an attempt to take Greece, but they were never conquered. And we're talking uh, over 100 years before Alexander the Great even existed. 
since the time that Persia took power, they began attacking Greece because they were trying to push westward. And God created a wall there and says, you're not getting further than this. But they were causing a lot of damage. They were hurting the Grecian people, the Macedonian people. And so this was the beginning of the, in fact, that's where the the thought of the 300 Spartans and so forth, the Persians came and 300 of them, you know, held back thousands of the Persian army. Uh, That all happened within that time period before Alexander the Great. All right. Uh, So, so this would be the beginning of Greece's strengthening in order to overcome the Persians. And so over a century later, Alexander would take Persia motivated by the decades of abuse and attacks by Persia, all right? Letter C, Cyrus and his armies pushed westward, northward, and southward. So really, Cyrus, being a Persian, that is what we call today Iraq, Iran, that area over there. That's where Babylon was. That's where it is right now. There still is a remnant of Babylon over there, you know? And so what's happening is, these eastern kingdoms are trying to take over the west. They're pushing west. So when they finally hit Greece and they, they, they dug in there, what does Greece do? Push east, you know? And that's, where, that's how that happened at that point. Uh, and so I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward. So they didn't go eastward. They went westward. They went northward. They went southward. So they went up to Asia. They went south to Africa. And they went straight to Europe, into Greece and all those European countries that we know today. Amen. Trying to take over the world. So Cyrus defeated Libya, Egypt, all of the Asia Minor, and went as far as India as well. Um, and that, that was actually, we'll talk about that later. Number two, Cyrus became great. It says, no beast could stand before him. No living thing could stand before him. No one could overcome Cyrus. He did everything according to his will, the Bible says. His own pleasure, his delight, his desire. Whatever he did, God just allowed it to take place. And he was able to do whatever and take whatever he wanted. So he became great. This means he grew. He was promoted. He was made a great leader and the Persian nation was very, very strong. But what took place? The he-goat, the he-goat. So now we're moving up in time here. Um, show you the picture there. In Daniel 8, verse number 5, it says this, And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. In Daniel chapter 11, it gives you a little more detail here. It says, And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. And that shows you the short lived rule of Alexander. Letter A, the he-goat was the leopard in Daniel's last vision. I found you a better leopard picture, I think. There we go. Not quite as pixelated as last, last week's, all right? And that you see in Daniel 7, verse 6. After this I beheld, 
And lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Letter B, the he-goat is the king of Greece, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. And I have some pictures here. Here's a bust that was made of him. Alexander, handsome man. <laughs> All right. There's a mosaic also that was made of, of uh, Alexander the Great. Not so handsome in that one. <laughs> and so we have a, after Gabriel speaks and talks to Daniel in verse 21, he says, And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Alexander was born in 356 356 BC in Pella, Macedonia, to King Philip II, I believe it was. Uh, Interesting life Alexander had. He was actually trained in philosophy by Aristotle himself. That's quite something. Aristotle taught Alexander that classes were something that you couldn't help. And so really that slavery was okay. And he, this is how he was taught in his philosophy. So part of his philosophy was, well, there's really no other purpose that you have here. You're not of the ruling class, so you're just going to be a slave for the rest of your life. So he went into an area to conquer it. He would just sell all the people into slavery. And so he was just brutal. He was just a brutal uh, dictator. Um, Philip, Alexander's father, and he was also very bright. He was very smart. But his father bought a horse called... Bucephalus, I think it was called, for the exorbitant price of 13 talents, that's one talent, 27 kilograms of gold. But the rambunctious animal bucked all the comers. Anybody that wanted to sit on it just bucked them off. Watching the futile attempts, Alexander noticed that the animal was frightened by its own shadow. He bet his father that he could mount the horse. By turning Bucephalus toward the sun so its shadow was behind it, Alexander was able to climb into the saddle and galloped around triumphantly, to which his father said, My boy, you must find a kingdom big enough for your ambitions. Macedonia is too small for you. And this was as he was a boy. So he already showed at a young age that he was very smart, very bright, very tactical in the way he approached things. A rough goat, as Gabriel explained it later, was actually just means a male goat, uh, a male a buck. According to Greek tradition, the founder of the Macedonian kingdom was Karamis, who followed a goat herd to Edessa and made that the capital. He renamed it Aegea, which means the goat. So the goat was something that actually was a picture that was used and an emblem that was used within Greece, you know. So here the Lord, long before, <laughs> talks about this he goat that's going to come. And destroy the ram. And the ram is interesting as well because uh, Persia was in mountainous regions. So the rams were, were animals that could actually hop and climb. I don't know if you've ever gone to the, the mountains over here and saw those rams. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, you see they're down here, and 10 minutes later you look up and they're almost at the top of the mountain and they're climbing up a steep bank like this with their hooves. I'm wondering how in the world do you stay up there? But these rams have, can easily move around on the mountains. That's why Ram was a, was a uh, symbol within the Persian nation. And so you had the goat and you had the ram. All right. So Greece had a global impact. 
It says, and as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth. This king was someone God used to further his plan in the whole earth. I believe it was very important. Not because Alexander loved God. He wasn't. He was actually a very immoral, ungodly man. But he was used incidentally to Alexander's, uh, because of Alexander's lustful desire to conquer. So God used him like he did many other people. Nebuchadnezzar was called God's servant as he went over and destroyed Jerusalem. God used these people even though they weren't, weren't even saved. Uh, a couple of ways that it happened is Alexander put an end to the Oriental influence that threatened the Western world. You think about this, it's always been that the East is trying to influence the West. Right from the beginning, you know. And so Alexander was the first nation that truly stood up against the Eastern influence and pushed back eastward <laughs> and took down the nation. And that's important because Eastern influence was where idol worship began. <laughs> I mean, of course, um, Alexander was no Christian, that's for sure. But can you imagine if that Eastern kingdom would have continued to just bowl over the whole world and would be influencing even our country today? Because the reason why we have what we have is because Europe was the way it was at the time it was when they came here. And the reason why it was like that is because the influence of these early nations. Amen? And so we got to think about this, you know? So Alexander put an end to that. Idol worship began in the East, and it was influencing toward the West. Even in the 20th century, you can see it, I've said it before, the, these uh, certain rock bands came in. They started to bring in what? Eastern mysticism. It's the devil's tool all along. He's been trying to bring what he started in Babylon. He's been trying to bring that across the world. <laughs> That's why you got to think about this as well, about China's influence in this century. Why are we talking about China all the time? Why is China always on the, uh, on the conversation? Why is China involved in Canada? Why is China involved in the United States? It's a part of a satanic plan for the East to invade the West. Not just invade like we're talking power and politics. We're talking the mind. Look at what's happening. Look what's happening with these young people talking about communism and talking about dictatorships. And, but they're crazy people. <laughs> they're absolutely crazy. But they've been so influenced already by the East, the East has come over. And so it was because of Alexander's stand that we didn't have that centuries ago. <laughs> Amen. He put a stop to it. And so, uh, letter B, by extending Greek culture and language, he brought people together. So this is very interesting. Like his culture, he brought that into the whole world. His language, he brought that into the whole world. In fact, when he finally defeated Persia, he had 9,000 generals that married in a mass wedding 9,000 Eastern women. <laughs> he connected the kingdoms together. In fact, he, when he lived in Babylon, after he took down Persia, he married a Babylonian dancer. Guess what her name was? Does anybody know? <laughs> You'd think it'd be some crazy Greek name. Her name was Roxanne. Believe it or not, Roxanne. <laughs> All right. 
It just was spelled with one N, not two. All right. So letter C, the Koine Greek language became the language of the New Testament. The, the re, think about this. The power that he had to spread the Greek language throughout the world, even later when Rome became the ruling empire, what's Rome's language? Latin. <laughs> Is that funny? <laughs> Latin. Now that's important because now the Roman Catholic Church, they're always talking Latin, but nobody would understand what they were saying. Why not? Because they all spoke Greek. And so God gave them the Bible in the Greek language. And that Greek language, that Greek language and that empire continued way past Rome's influence. And in fact, it was till I think the 1400s when finally the Byzantine Empire was complete, was finished. Right when the printing press was, was created, was invented. Then all of a sudden the Greek language died away. That's all a part of God's plan of preservation. Is it not? God preserved his word through the Greek language because it was a language that took over the whole world. It was a common Greek language. That's why they call it koine. It's common. Everybody knew the language. That's why we have no question of what the word baptizo means. Nothing has changed. We know it. It was a common language, and that language spread throughout the world and that's how God preserved his word for centuries after, until the printing press. And when the printing press came on, guess what preserved the word? The copies. <laughs> Amen? Because it no longer had to be handwritten. It was all now being printed. And you think about today, how is the word of God being preserved? <laughs> what if someone would come on the scene and say, I'm going to come and steal away all the Bibles? <laughs> Well, all you got to do is look on your phone, <laughs> you know. There is Bibles everywhere. <laughs> the scriptures are everywhere. And God has used these things to preserve his word. And so, um, but it's interesting that even the Roman Catholic Church with the Latin language, the priests would preach it and teach it, but very few people would truly understand it. And that's what led people into the Dark Age. Because the Roman Catholic Church, putting down all the free churches, becoming the church, the, the uh, state churches, yet they preached a message that no one could understand, <laughs> which was probably good, you know. But that's why it, it fueled the desire for some of these men, even Wycliffe, uh, Tyndale, they wanted the Bible to be put in the hands of the common man so they could understand and read it for themselves. It became a motivator that the scriptures would be spread, spread abroad. You never thought there'd be a time where New Testaments would have to be smuggled into England. And if they found you with them, they'd kill you. <laughs> that was the day of Tyndale. When he ran away to Germany, and they, you know, he was doing his work over there, they sent a spy over there, they arrested him, brought him back, burned him at the stake for simply taking the Bible translating it to English so people could understand it and bringing it into England. That's wild, you know. Number two, Greece conquered with great speed because of its small size. And so it would never be a, a huge army. You would always have the Persian army made up of 250,000 
Alexander would go in with 30,000, 40,000, and he would just whoop up on them every time. <laughs> they would always lose against Alexander. In fact, the Persian king was already, okay, let's make a truce. And Alexander said, no way, man, we're taking you down. Can you imagine this? He would not quit. He would not quit. And he touched not the ground. The leopard is a smaller beast than a lion and a bear, but it is a speedy animal given more speed by four wings. The he-goat didn't touch the ground, denoting its speed in conquest. In two years, Alexander had defeated the Persian army in three major battles. This great army that ruled the world was destroyed by a small army within three years of, of or two years of, Daniel, of uh, Alexander's leadership. So within seven years, Alexander conquered Anatolia, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Persia, Afghanistan, and the western part of India. In fact, after he destroyed Persia, he went and set up shop there in Babylon for a while. That's where he died. But from Babylon, he started going further east. They didn't know what India was like. They didn't know how big it was. They thought it was maybe just a little small peninsula on the ocean there. So they went in there, thought they were going to take it. When they got there, they said, wow. And his, his soldiers began to die because they weren't prepared to travel the vast land of India. So he finally convinced them to return back to Babylon. Then he went back through the coastway and he had about 15,000 soldiers die. Those 15,000 soldiers, more died returning back to Babylon than actually were killed in the war itself because of his, his obsessive desire to conquer. And in fact, when he got back to Babylon, he started to put plans together to take the Arabian world. <laughs> he wanted it all. He was not going to quit. And that's why I believe God had to kill him. So he died at 32 years old before he could do all that. So Alexander was the notable horn between the goat's eyes. And that goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Notable means a vision and a striking appearance. And Alexander controlled the vision of the he-goat. That means as much as these generals said, let's go home, we've had enough, you know, that horn would, would control where those eyes would set. And he would control everything. And it didn't matter what they said. What he said goes, that's it. You know? And so he had a lot of power. Letter C. The he-goat attacks the ram. Um, and he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing by the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram. And he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So, number one, Alexander and the Macedonian army went on the offense against the Persians. You think if you have a smaller army, you'd try to set up a defense. But not Alexander. He went on the offense. And that's why it says that the, the he-goat came against the ram, came to the ram. The Persian army always waited. They were always slow. They always behind. They never got anywhere on time. In fact, even when Alexander tried crossing the river to come over to Persia to take them, they tried to beat him there to stop him by the river because they thought that'd be strategic. Uh, he was already across by the time they got there, so they retreated, you know, because he moved so fast. 
Um, the last battle was on the east side of Tigris. The Grecian army passed over the Tigris River before the Persian army could stop them. So they waited at a clear field at Guagamela, thinking this would give them tactical advantage. So the, the Persian army would just sit there in this huge field. I don't know if I have that field here. Do I have it there? Maybe I didn't load it up. Anyways, so there was, there was three major armies. I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit. Number two, he ran in the fury of his power. Fury means wrath or heat. Um, remember, Alexander's been abused. He saw his people hurt over a century of being attacked by the Persian army. <laughs> the first battle, the Battle of Isis, they thought, oh, we're going to bowl right over this Alexander. And they found out that he was brilliant. And he began to scare the Persian army. And so what happened is, he was, they beat him. 250,000 soldiers against 40,000. Alexander went in and cleaned them up. <laughs> you know, it was over. What, what they thought they would do is they level out the, the field because the Persians were known for their chariots. You want to pull up that picture of the chariot? I don't know if it's going to be big enough, but it is. So what they would do is they'd put razors on the wheels of their chariots. And so whenever there was a battle, they'd always choose a very flat field, and they'd go ahead of time and clear out any debris, any rocks, and whatever, so that when the army came, <laughs> they would just bowl them over and cut them up by driving through. But Alexander already learned how to handle this tactically, and these things became useless in the army. In fact, uh, Alexander, when he attacked, he always lured them away from the flat field onto the rocky terrain where they couldn't even use the chariots. And they fell for it every time, for whatever reason. And so, uh, number three, he came close and moved with choler against the ram. That means he was bitter. He was grieved. This was a, an attack of being offended, I have been afflicted. I am taking revenge. No matter what you do, I'm taking you down. In fact, after that first battle, the Battle of Isis, uh, which was the first one that he met the Persian army and defeated them, Alexander went south to Egypt for a while. They crowned him the Pharaoh of Egypt. He became the Pharaoh. They called him a god. He stood there for a while and hung out. And then Darius, the, the king of Persia, sends a, uh, uh, sends a note or a message to Alexander, and he's wanting to make peace. And he offered him even his daughter's hand in marriage. You know what Alexander said? I'll take your daughter and the dowry, and I don't need your permission. <laughs> Whoa. So in other words, vacation time was done in Egypt, he got his army moving, and they started moving to the second battlefield. Well, the second one was, was, uh, was ISIS. There was one before that. Now he's going to the last one. And that's where he went up that fertile crescent, and he went across the Tigris River up over there. And so uh, Darius tried three times to try to get him to quit. And even one of his generals said, if I, if I would have got that deal, I would have taken it. I mean, he gave him, he was going to give him so much, but nothing would stop Alexander. Why? Because this was a matter of bitterness. This was a matter of revenge. He hated him. He was angry. 
and nothing was going to stop him. And so he said, I'm taking him out. And that's what he did. That's why he talks about he moved with fury. He moved with choler against the ram. And so at three different times they had these battles. He overcame the Persian army. The Battle of Granicus in 334, the Battle of Isis in 333, and the Battle of Guagamela in 331. Three major battles, and he, he overcame the Persian army. That's how strategic he was. All right, I think we have time to go to the, any of that. Letter D, the great horn was broken. Daniel 8.8, 8, therefore the he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable horns towards notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Number one, at the height of Alexander's power, he died of sickness at 32 years old in Babylon. He was partying, drinking. He was going to retire for the night. His good buddy said, let's go to one more party. They went to that one more party. He drank something there, and he screamed. Something hit him. Somebody thought that he actually was poisoned at that party. So he went to the, his room. He was there for a little bit. He tried to put on a good face. He even tried to do business and so forth during that time. The next day, he caught a fever. A lot of people thought it was maybe malaria or something like that. And in a short time, he was dead. So 32 years old. 32 years old. But man, I'll tell you something. He sure did a lot of things at 32 years old. Seven years. So we're talking he started at 25, taking over the world. <laughs> Boy, I talk about ambition. <laughs> How many of us at 25 are thinking about dominating the world, you know? Not me. <laughs> the kingdom, I got married at 25. <laughs> the kingdom was divided in four parts between four of Alexander's generals. We saw that in Daniel chapter 7, um, how the beast had, or the leopard had four heads and dominion was given to it. All right. And here it talks about the, the four, the one horn. Uh, let's see here. The four horns. And out of them, uh, came forth a little horn, verse 9, which waxed exceeding great toward the south.